0: Amen. Well, good morning. <coughs> I'm guessing this is the first ever service at Harbor City that's been led by a couple of Chads. Um, we were talking earlier, there's, there's two things you probably need to know about Chads. Uh, one is if somebody has the name Chad, they're an American. And the second thing is they were born in the 1970s. And those two things are always true about 99% of the time. Uh, My my family will be joining us. I'm married. I I have uh, three daughters, 14, 12, and 10, so they'll be joining us uh, for the second service. My wife is Christy, and and I am serving now with our denominations campus ministry overseeing all of the cross-cultural ministry, uh, which is students coming from the nations to us here in the U.S. on college campuses as well as ministries that we have overseas. And there was really one defining moment for me that began to shift my heart. I had done almost 20 years of college ministry to American students here in the United States. And then there was one defining moment for me that began to sort of shift my heart and, and my focus. And it was a couple years ago, I was invited by Mission to the World, or MTW, which is our denomination's global missions partner. And they were, one of, they were connecting with churches in Italy and they were asking the question, how can we best help you, uh, you at these Italian churches, to, to reach people for Jesus? And they said, well, we're realizing that in Italian culture, it's hard to reach folks. And so one of the best ways is to connect to people when they're ages 18 to 22 on college campuses. So they brought us over just to, to look at a couple of different cities and, and, and meet with pastors and, and walk campuses. So we were in Rome. Uh, then we went to Milan, and then we went to a smaller city named Trent. And Trent is in the, uh, the southern part of the Italian Alps. And, and the University of Trent, it's a smaller city, uh, 16,000 students at the University of Trent. It feels more like an American campus because the students are living around uh, the campus. They're not all spread out through, throughout the city. And so one night, the, uh, the Americans were, were having dinner with the Italians, about six Americans, six Italians, and I happened to be sitting across a graduate student at the University of Trent. And he was an American. He had been involved in college ministry in Ohio, and he was now leading a Bible study at the University of Trent. About 10 to 12 students were in the Bible study, and all of them were international students. And he said none of them were Italians. So then I said to him... Well, tell me about the other campus ministries that are reaching students for Jesus at the University of Trent. And he said, there are no other ministries. He was about to graduate. The Bible study was about to be over. And then there was going to be no witness on college campus, on this college campus, for the sake of Jesus. And that hit me like a ton of bricks, where places like UCSD or San Diego State, you've got 10, 12, 15, even more evangelical ministries, but the rest of the world is mostly underserved with the gospel. And it was then that my heart began to sort of shift towards cross-cultural ministry. The passage that we're going to look at this morning, there was one defining moment for the Apostle Paul. That led him to confront Peter the Apostle in public. And it was over people who had also been underexposed to the God of the Bible. going to read now Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. Verse 11. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. When I was in seminary, I had a friend named Clay, and Clay was from Texas. And Clay grew up in a a Christian home. But Clay was not walking with the Lord while he was in high school. In fact, he was partying hard. He was drinking heavily and was getting into drugs. And his parents recognized that. And so his senior year, before it started, they said to Clay, you're not allowed to go out with your friends during school nights. Well, that fall starts of his senior year and and not more than a week or two, Clay walks into the kitchen one night. His mom is standing up. His dad is sitting down at the kitchen table. And Clay said, Hey, mom and dad, I want to go out with some friends. It's a Thursday night. It's almost the weekend. Nothing big's going on. We're just going to hang out, which he was lying. They were going to party and do drugs. And he said, Is it okay if I go out tonight? And his mom answered and said, Clay, you know, we, we've laid down the rule. And no, you can't go out tonight. And Clay's blood just began to boil. Finally, he said, Mom, you are such a... And he said something to his mom It was really harsh. Now, I've met Clay's father a couple of times, and his father is very mild-mannered. His father slowly rose up from his chair, and he walked over to his son, Clay. And he said, Clay, if you're man enough to say that word to your mother, then you're man enough to step outside right now. Clay told me later, he said, my dad is the most laid-back, mild man you will ever meet, but there's one thing that he's willing to fight for and fight over, and that's his wife. For, for the Apostle Paul, there was one thing that he was willing to fight the Apostle Peter over, and it was the gospel, a right understanding of Christianity, how someone can find and be in the favor of God. And the word that Paul uses to explain this concept of how someone can be made right with God is the word "justification." It's what we see in verse 16. It says, "Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ." So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the word justified can also be translated as righteous. So the idea here is how can somebody be in a righteous relationship, a right standing with God? And for Paul, the answer is by faith alone, not by works, not by obedience not by your own goodness. It's not a matter of achieving, but it's a matter of receiving. And in Christianity, the way that God secures this right relationship with uh, with him is by sending his son Jesus into the world. And Jesus does two things for us. He takes the punishment that we deserve while he's on the cross takes that punishment, removes the punishment from us, and then Jesus gives us his perfect record of never sinning. Jesus scores 100% on life. He never failed God in life. Loving him, loving others, always obedient. Of course, we do not. We score an F in life. But by faith, Jesus gives us his perfect record in this life, 100%, living perfectly, pleasing to God, and so that when God sees us, our sins have been paid for, and we stand before him perfect, not because we are, not because we've achieved, Know that we've received Jesus' perfect record given to us. I want to illustrate this for you. In, in this past December, there was a woman named Ruth Balloon. She was living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And after work, she opened up her phone app, her bank account app, and on her bank account app was $37 million in her bank account. $37 million. Now, that 37000000 million hadn't been there before. So, Ruth and her husband called the bank and they said, Just want you to know, we opened our app, it says we have $37 million. I don't know if this is right or not, but I don't think we've earned this or made this. And the bank said, Oh, you're, you're right, it's not yours, we've made a mistake. And they quickly corrected the mistake. So now that their bank account actually reflected what they had in it, which was not very much. But could you imagine if when you called the bank, they said, no, that's right, it's not your money. You haven't earned it, but you can keep it. Right? (laughs) That's what God does for us in Jesus Christ. We've not earned it, but now we are rich in the eyes of the Father because we have Jesus' perfect record of righteousness before God. The gospel is what Paul was willing to fight Peter over. Because Peter had known this, that you are justified by faith, not faith. By works, but he began to forget this. And he had fallen back to a spiritual equation that said this Jesus must do his part, plus you must do your part. Jesus, plus your obedience. He began to fall into this pattern because. In verse 12, we see that Peter has been fellowshiping with these Galatians who were Gentiles, who were living outside of Jerusalem. So he's fellowshipping with these Galatians, meaning he is eating with them. He is calling them believers as they have table fellowship. But then when these men from Jerusalem come to Galatia and to Antioch, Peter then stops eating with the Galatians. He removes his table fellowship from them. And what he is saying to these Galatians or these people in Antioch is, I've made a mistake. I thought you were Christians, but you're actually not. You're pretty close. You believe in Jesus, but you need to do a couple more things. You need to follow some dietary laws and you need to be circumcised. Peter was saying, you're almost there. Now, these men who came from Jerusalem or from James, they believed that reconciliation really had two parts with God. One, and these men believed this, that you had to trust in Jesus, and you had to believe that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. So they did believe that, but they were convinced that you also had to become like a Jew to be circumcised. Now, the problem by living with this spiritual equation is Jesus plus your obedience to the law. Is that when is it ever good enough? When is what you ever do perfect enough? When do you ever feel like you're free now to sort of enjoy, but you're always constantly pushing and trying to do more and more to earn God's favor? It becomes a huge burden. This gives us more insight into why Paul was willing to fight Peter publicly. Paul's confrontation with Peter was not just for the Galatians, but Paul is concerned about even something bigger than the Galatians here in chapter 2. Paul is thinking about the world. I have, I have three daughters, and the phrase that I've heard more than any other phrase from my daughters is not... I love you, Daddy. It's not, I'm so pleased with how you've parented me. It's not, I won't date until I'm 30, I promise. It's also not, I want to pay for my own college. And it's not, I want to take care of you, Daddy, when you get older. The phrase that I've heard more than any other phrase is this But you promised. That's the phrase that I've heard. You promised, Dad, that we were going to Chick-fil-A this afternoon. You promised we were going to the park. You promised we could have dessert. Kids never forget a promise. Adults never forget a promise. We hold on to promises like someone holding on to a winning lottery ticket, right? You promised. And Paul is here as he is fending off Peter. He is reaching his arm up to God, and he is saying, God, but you promised. You promised. Because look what Paul has in his mind. Just a few verses later in Galatians chapter 3. Even more so we have the curtains rolled back into what Paul is actually thinking and why he's so upset with Peter. It's over a promise. In verse 6 of chapter 3. He says, Abraham was justified or righteous in the sight of God because of faith. So he's reminding the Galatians, this is the way it's always been. Even Father Abraham was made right with God because of faith alone. And then he says in verse 7, Now then it is those of faith who are the true sons of Abraham. If you have faith, you are the people of God. And then he says this in verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Do you hear what Paul is saying? The promise, the promise in Genesis 12 that said, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and you will be a nation that blesses all other nations. So through you and your people, Abraham, all the families of the world will be blessed. In other words, what the world needs most, Abraham, is what I am giving to you and your people, the gospel. That's what Paul is upset about here. In other words, this idea that you can be justified or made right with God is the blessing that the world needs most. And it's an audacious promise. It's given to Abraham's people. And Abraham's people... Are the people of God. And Abraham's people, which are the people of God, are the church of Jesus Christ, which is you. You hold the very promise and the blessing that the world needs most, which Paul tells us here in Galatians 3 is the gospel. And wherever this promise has been made, Wherever this hope for the rest of the world, for the nations, has been proclaimed, it always comes with threats. Always threats to the promise. The first time that the great promise of God, that the church is the blessing for the world, we see it here in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. And the promise is made in the midst of a threat. And the threat is to Abraham that there will be those who want to harm you. There will be those who want to curse you. The second time we see the promise to Abraham that through Abraham all the world will be blessed because of the gospel, we see it in Genesis chapter 17 and 18 where God is reaffirming this problem or this promise to Abraham. But the threat here is that Abraham is 99 years old, his wife is almost 90, and they're childless. The third time we see this promise. In Scripture, that the offspring of Abraham would be as numerous as the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore is in Genesis 22, and it's given to Abraham. And Abraham tells God, tells Abraham that he needs to come and worship him, and there needs to be a sacrifice to worship. And so Abraham now has to make the decision whether to worship or to sacrifice his own son Isaac. There's the threat. The fourth time the promise comes is Genesis 26. And God says to Isaac in Genesis 26, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all the nations will be blessed through you. But now the threat is that there's famine. There's not food in the land. And the next time we see the promise and the final time that I'll mention is Genesis 28. When now Abraham's grandson, who is now Jacob, called Israel in a little bit, says, from you all the promises of the world, all the families of the world will be blessed. But this time the threat is, for Jacob, there's no one near him to marry. Each time the promise is surrounded by a threat. There is a threat to the great promise of the gospel going forward, advancing for the good of the world and the glory of God. And each time God provides a way. He provides... Provides his presence for Abraham in the midst of hostility. God provides a son for Abraham when he and his wife could not get pregnant. God provides a lamb for Abraham so that Isaac doesn't have to be sacrificed. God provides food so Isaac doesn't have to starve. And God provides a bride for Jacob. So Paul, here in Galatians... As he sees the gospel beginning to move out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, he's not surprised that there's another threat to the gospel, to the promise of God for the nations. Almost 90 years ago, God provided John and Betty Stam to the nation of China when it looked like the promise of the gospel, moving to China, was about to die. In 1931, John Stamm had graduated from Moody Bible College. A year later, in China, 11 missionaries from the Scandinavian Alliance mission were killed by communists. Fall of 32, that same year, Stam leaves to become a missionary in China. And there he meets his future wife, Betty, who was the daughter of missionaries also in China. In September of 34, two years later, they have their first daughter, Helen Priscilla. And then they're now assigned to Anway Province, which had been evacuated two years earlier because of communist activity and threats. John and Betty arrive November of 1934. One week after their arrival to Anway Province, the communist army comes back. To Anhui province, and they capture John and Betty and Helen Priscilla, the baby. And they're taken into captivity, placed under heavy guard. A few days later, John writes a letter to the China Inland Mission, who he'd been serving for. And this is what the letter says My wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of the communists in the city of Singta. Their demand is $20,000 for our release. All our possessions and stores are in their hands, but we praise God for peace in our hearts and a meal tonight. God grant you wisdom in what you do and us fortitude, courage, peace of heart. God is able and a wonderful friend in such a time. The Lord bless and guide you and as for us, may God be glorified whether by life or by death. Chinese are asking for $20,000 ransom, but the policy across all mission agencies at that time was you don't give into ransom requests. So John and Betty knew what was about to happen. They took them to another city, the Chinese. The whole city came out to watch their execution. They stripped them down to their underwear, and they executed John and Betty. They were about to execute the baby, Helen Priscilla, when a Chinese convict who had just recently been released stepped out and said, you cannot do this. And the guard said, well, who will stand in her place? And he said, I will. And he died so that Helen Priscilla could live. In that crowd happened to be a Christian couple, a Chinese Christian couple. They took the baby, and they carried the baby 100 miles to the next missionary couple. And that missionary couple took the baby and returned the baby to her grandparents, Betty's parents, who were also missionaries in China. But the promise of God is always overcoming the threat. The death of the Stams made national news here in the U.S. that year, so much so that the the most amount of money that had ever come in since the stock market crash started flowing into missions, global missions, because of the Stams' death the number of missionaries from the U.S. increased significantly as young people began to hear this story. And Helen Priscilla herself grew up to be a campus missionary on U.S. colleges. 85 years later, it is believed that there are now 100 100 million Christians in China. Over the next 10 years, the expectation is that it will grow to 250 million Christians in China. It's one of the fastest growing nations with the gospel. And this is what John Stamm wrote before he left for the mission field Shall we beat a retreat and turn back from our high calling in Christ Jesus? Or dare we advance at God's command in the face of the impossible? Let us remind ourselves that the Great Commission was never qualified by clauses, calling for advance only if funds were plentiful and there was no hardship or self-denial involved. On the contrary, we are told to expect tribulation and even persecution, but with it victory in Christ. Today, the promise of God that the nations of the world would know him, that they would be justified with him, continues. But there continues to be threats to the promise. And I'll just name a couple threats today. Western Europe and North America, over the last hundred years, have really been the bastion for Christianity and the launching pad for missions is now shifting. It's becoming post-Christian. Countries now, these countries are filled uh, with some empty churches. Christ is not known like he was. And yet now the gospel continues to grow. Um, Places like China... Latin America, Africa, explosive Christian growth. There are now uh, many nations that are closed to missionaries. You cannot be a missionary and get to these nations. But this is what God is doing in the midst of the threat. He is sending those nations that are closed, he is sending their young people to the United States. There are 1.1 million international students studying in the United States here and over 600,000 of those students are from countries that are close to missionaries, or, are, or they are on the top 10 list for persecuting Christians, and they're here into the U in the U.S. God is bringing the nations to us. When we think about even the U.S., no doubt, things are beginning to shift. Perhaps we're moving into a post-Christian culture, but does the world need the American church today? Well, well. Absolutely. Uh, The American church by far is the wealthiest church nation in the world. This just came out this week. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, it was matching GDPs uh, of states with GDPs of countries. Gross domestic product. Is that right, GDP? Uh, So the GDP of California is about equal with that of India. It's a huge country. The GDP of New York is equal to that of the country of Canada. The GDP of Illinois is equal to that of the Netherlands. The GDP of Wisconsin is equal to that of Denmark. The American church has a significant role to play. We we must continue to support missions as the gospel is going out just like God had promised to Abraham. We are super resourced with seminaries and training. And so sending people to train. Is that me? I don't think so, is it? Okay, okay. Um, that must be the warning alert. Okay, I'm, rap- I'm landing this plane now. Here we come. Um, <laughs> um, all of this means that the U.S. Church has much to offer. Um, I want to read... Um, A quote from a pastor of this denomination who has been dead now for 20 years, but who saw the direction where our church was moving, and he offers a warning to us. His name's John Miller. This is what he says. As I have studied the Reformed church fathers and their achievements in the ministry of the gospel, what has come through again and again is their conviction that the gospel, the word of God, is alive and active. A message so powerful and so thoroughly irresistible when applied by the Holy Spirit that it could not help but bear fruit and salvation of souls. Their reverence for the word and for the doctrines of grace was great, just as ours is today. But the difference between us is this. While our emphasis is on preserving true doctrine and defending the faith, theirs was on taking the gospel and going on the offensive. Bringing God's message to men and conquering them in Christ. They wanted not only to preserve the gospel, but to put it to work, to see it change lives and to expand God's kingdom. Finally, where does this power come from for the promise to Abraham that the gospel would go to all the nations of the world? Well, the power for the promise, it comes from Jesus. And we see it even in his final words that are known as the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. As Jesus, in his final words, as he's leaving this world, he says to us, his disciples, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now I send you forth to go and to make disciples. Several years ago in Minnesota where I used to live before I moved to California, there was a boy named Mitch. And Mitch had uh, terminal cancer, eight years old. And he was living and staying in a Ronald McDonald's house, which was near the hospital. And it's a, it's a great thing that Ronald McDonald's uh, house does. They, they make a very comfortable place for families to come visit, even sometimes stay overnight to be with their children who are very sick. And Mitch, uh, in his room, had a roommate, and he was also also an eight-year-old boy. And they shared this room, and it was around Christmas. And Mitch's roommate's parents happened to be in the room this one evening. And the eight-year-old roommate said to his mom and dad, Mom and dad, will there be presents this Christmas? And the mother and the father looked at their eight-year-old son, and they said, I'm sorry, son, but we've spent all of our money trying to get you well, and we don't have money for presents this year. And the eight-year-old boy began to weep. Mitch and his father, who was also in the room, overheard all of this. Later that evening, Mitch said to his dad, Dad, we have to do something about this. And he said, How much money, Dad, do I have in my bank account? And he had $6,000, which is pretty good for an eight-year-old, right? Right? So the next day, they went to the bank, and they withdrew $6,000, all in $100 bills. They went across the street to the CVS, and they bought envelopes. And then Mitch, who had been now with lots of these friends who were living in the Ronald McDonald's house, these sick kids, he had gotten to know them and sort of knew how they were doing financially. And so some envelopes he would put $300 in. Some envelopes he would put $500 in. Some envelopes he would put $700 in. And he would take these envelopes, and if the room was open where his friends were and nobody was in there, he would take the envelope and he would place it on the bed. And if somebody was in the room, he would take the envelope and he would slide it under the door. And that day, Mitch sat back and he listened to the eruption of screams of joy and laughter as his friends were opening these envelopes with $300 or $500 or $700 and they were going to have presents. At the end of that day, Mitch looked to his father and he said, Dad, this has been the best day of my life. We have to do it next year. And his dad said, well, son, you're not going to be here next year. We've already talked about that. And Mitch said, yes, that's right. So, Dad, you're going to have to do it for me. And that's what Jesus is saying in his final words as he leaves this world, that the greatest gift that the world can know is that I've laid down my life for them. And I've taken my life back up so that they may live forever. And this is what he gives to his people, the church. The promise all the way back to Abraham that the people of God, the church, have the greatest gift to offer to the world. Harbor City, offer this gift to the people in San Diego and to those of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the gift. Thank you that you are restoring and reconciling men and women to you. Lord, would you continue to do this? Would you use your church in America and other countries to continue to reach out and bring the gospel forth, the promise given to Abraham so many years ago, which is still true today. God, you promised, and we're so thankful that you have. And we lift all these things in the name of Jesus, amen.